I always felt like I was a saltwater fish in a freshwater pond. Welcome back, investor, on your passive income journey. This one is going to be a great one for you because we get really deep into the mindset side of investing and why you're going to do what you're trying to accomplish. We all know that it's off the beaten path. It's not mainstream. And sometimes you're going to run into some roadblocks. And how do you keep your mindset strong so that you can weather those difficulties? But we also really dive really deep into the nuts and bolts of how to make good investing decisions, whether you're a potential limited partner trying to figure out how to put money into your first deal, or you want to become an active investor especially if you want to become a full-time deal analyzer or financial underwriter. We have Jason Bake, who basically did exactly that. He left his corporate job, became a full-time underwriter for Compounding Capital Group. And this is what he does as a multifamily operator, teaches an online course to really dive deep into what you need to know. And you can take as little or as much into that rabbit hole as you want to do. So the balance of being able to deal with some of the difficulties of learning how to run the numbers and problems that a property might have in commercial real estate or any investment that you're dealing with so that you can get to your passive income adventure faster is really helped by thinking about why am I doing this and how am I going to get through the hard stuff by keeping that vision front and center, top of mind? So I know you're going to enjoy this episode. Thank you so much for spending time with us today. And we wish you the best luck on your passive income adventure. And we want to be here to help you get the information and the inspiration that you need to achieve your goals. So let's just jump into it with Jason Bake. He is with us today from Compounding Capital Group. I'm really excited to be interviewing Jason today because he is an expert in underwriting and knowing your numbers. Ask yourself how well you do really know your numbers. This is going to be especially helpful for you if you don't love running numbers. And Jason's backstory is really going to inspire you to see what's possible with passive income and entrepreneurial journey when you just get started and just get going. So Jason, thank you for coming on the show. Yeah, thanks for having me, Emma. Yeah, I would love to hear you just introduce yourself a little bit. Tell us about your background. Maybe start with your elevator pitch and tell us your story. It's pretty unique as far as how early you got started and how early you started having some success. Yeah, it doesn't feel early to me. I feel like <laughs> I, I waited too long, but I feel like everyone has that same mentality where well, if only they had started a few years earlier. So I used to be in corporate America, I used to be a data scientist. I started off right after college being a junior analyst, climbing those corporate ranks until I got to the level of director and vice president over, over a decade. And throughout my entire corporate career, I always thought that I was following someone else's business plan. And that business plan being my parents, they are immigrants from South Korea. And so they didn't really know much about how to be entrepreneurs. My, my dad is an entrepreneur himself, but more of like a blue collar. He ran a small business that he struggled with for a number of years before it eventually closed down. But most immigrants have the same mentality where they want their kids to go to a good school, get some good grades, get a good career as a lawyer or an engineer or a doctor and just find happiness in life that way. But after 30 years of following that myself, I realized that it probably didn't make sense for me to continue on this path when I knew that it didn't make me happy in any way. Not that I loved my time in corporate America, I loved my colleagues and even my bosses, but I always felt like I was a saltwater fish in a freshwater pond where it just didn't feel that fulfilling to me. And I decided a few years before I actually quit cold turkey, I decided to treat myself more of as a startup. I think most people do the smart thing <laughs> where they juggle a day job and also try to invest on real estate on the side. 
but I just know myself. I have a pretty hyper-focused mentality where I'm really good at giving one thing 110%. I'm really bad at juggling two things. So I figured I'd, I treat myself more as a startup. So I saved every penny I could. And then after I saved up X amount of dollars, because that's what I needed to keep myself afloat and start investing into some real estate, uh, I decided to actually make the transition yeah, completely from a corporate career that paid me six figures to being a quote unquote full-time real estate investor, even though I had absolutely no experience. I hadn't even bought my own house yet. So I barely understood how houses were like kept together. I couldn't tell brick from wood. So yeah, it's been a fun journey since then. A lot of learnings and a lot of missteps, but yeah, I've been having a great time. I'm always interested to hear people's stories on how aggressive they were when they made the leap from either full-time employee or small business owner, like you said, blue collar worker. Some of them, it's very incremental and they have two people working and a husband and wife team maybe or a couple and they are having one kind of start the business and then quit the job right, right. and then the other will come in the business and then quit the job. Others are just like, you know what? I know I can give 110% to one thing and mm -hmm. you just go out there and do it. And newsflash, nobody's really good at multitasking. So it's fantastic <laughs> that you recognize that right away, that nobody's really good at it. Sometimes we have to do it because we don't know how to keep our household afloat. So can mm -hmm. you describe that process a little bit? Because in my situation, I went full-time immediately. Mm -hmm. I wasn't really bringing in any income either, but my husband had a W-2. And so he was doing the short-term, keep the lights on, keep food on the table. How did you balance that when you just went all in at once? Yeah. So I th I'm in a similar position actually where I'm married and my wife actually also worked a corporate job, but two years before I decided to quit my day job, she actually made the transition to being an entrepreneur herself. She is a co-founder of a cybersecurity startup, which most of that goes over my head. But in the two years that she was growing, I still kept my corporate career, my corporate salary, my health benefits. And then once she had a little bit of traction, when she was making enough to pay for our expenses, that's when I felt the level of comfort that I could also make the transition. It wasn't that perfectly planned out. Like we hadn't mapped this out on a piece of paper, but it worked out that way because obviously as you're going through the day to day, you realize you feel a little safer because you know, your partner's business is doing better and you're able to have more confidence to, to make that jump yourself. So it's actually a very similar story. If I didn't have a spouse. Uh, or didn't have like that stability in my personal life. I don't know if I'd be able to make the leap. I might still be just as frustrated with corporate life to make the change, but obviously having a, a supportive infrastructure like in your personal life helps tremendously. I am reminded of a story I heard a friend of ours was leaving his corporate life to have a tech startup. And I knew his wife stayed at home with kids full time. And I said, how are you going to do this? And she said, we've just been saving up for it, saving up, living below our means, putting aside money, and then knowing that our departure would coincide with some Christmas, like end of year bonuses, and then basically cashing out some of the stock they owned in the options that they owned in the company so they could get a little bit of cash. So they're just saving up, setting it aside. Mm -hmm. And then he was able to make that leap and build his company successfully. And sometimes you just have to know where the money's coming from. If you know where the money's exactly. coming from to keep the lights on and keep food on the table, then your, your freedom opens way up so that you can make this leap. So the story that you tell, even though you didn't map it out that way, you're trying to take care of priorities, short-term mm -hmm. priorities and balancing it with the long-term priorities. 
So show us what those early days looked like when you first left and you're first learning. You obviously have a data science and a math background, math or physics. And I feel like that would help you to find your niche in your business or describe to us the process that you went through early on. Yeah, a hundred percent. The fact that I've already known my entire life, what I'm pretty good at helped me find that crucial, that foot in the door point into real estate. And to take a step back the day after that, I quit my corporate job, like after those two weeks were up, that transition for the next six months was probably the hardest to overcome. And it wasn't necessarily about education or networking or anything, but in corporate America, I got used to other people telling me what to do. Like, even if I was at a decent level in corporate America, I still had bosses. I still had clients. I had people that I managed put stuff on my calendar. And so I went from having a full 40 to 50 to 60 hours of work planned out for me to mm. having my calendar be completely free. It was completely <laughs> empty because I, I knew absolutely no one in real estate. I had no real estate to manage. And so that mental transition was, I think, the biggest hurdle in making the shift from being a corporate W-2 worker to, to an entrepreneur. Once I got over all of that, I clearly knew that I needed to find a specific specialty, a value that I could provide to other teams. And to me, it was kind of obvious. I think as I read more entrepreneurial books or I listen to videos or I listen to podcasts like this one, everyone usually mentions that you have to provide some sort of value to others. And I knew that pretty early on, even as soon as I quit my day job, I knew that I needed to start giving stuff for free, quote unquote, for me, that free thing that I gave away was my data knowledge. And so I spent a lot of hours that there was a time period early on in my journey where I would spend 40, 60, 80 hours a week doing work for other people with absolutely no promise of return. The hook that I had was that maybe if this deal pencils, they might cut me in, but I had no leverage. I couldn't say, are you guaranteeing me 10% of this deal for analyzing? No, of course not. They wouldn't even tell me how much it would give me, but they would say, okay, yeah, we'll include you on the investor team. And so it wasn't until that I started developing more of that skill set and underwriting for other people helped me become a better underwriter that I was able to gain the confidence to finally push back on some people and say, Hey, I'm pretty good at this underwriting thing now. Let's talk specifics first before I give away the next four months of my life for free to you. And that's how I slowly built the traction and started getting my foot in the door with teams and, and partnerships. Where did you learn how to do this? Because I know that there are books out there, there are videos, but oftentimes it's more a question of information overload rather than a lack of information. So what yeah. resources did you put together? I don't know if you did a paid mentorship, took a course, favorite books, or just YouTube university. How did you just dive into this? Because even though you're a math person, I know people who, when they first started from, let's say a financial management career in corporate America, and they have to learn how to run, underwrite commercial real estate deals. It's, it doesn't transfer over directly. Yeah. So how did you start to start getting your head wrapped around what tools you were going to use and how you were doing the research and making sense of what you were looking at? Yeah, most of that came in the form of free education, where in coming from corporate America, I wasn't really exposed to the concept of masterminds. Hmm. So the idea of giving tens, twenties, thirty thousand dollars for a mastermind, just like it, it seems so foreign to me. That was not something that I think in hindsight, I could ever have gotten involved with. T today, I'm part of plenty of masterminds and I spend over $50,000 a year on education. But that's me today versus me back then. And so I went down the rabbit hole of 
absorbing as much information as I can and knowing what I wanted to do made it a lot easier. I knew I wanted to be an underwriter. Like I, I wasn't going to raise capital. I wasn't going to do DTS. I read a ton of books. I uh, YouTube videos. Uh, there's a lot of uh, like Udemy courses, which kind of show you the basics of uh, waterfall modeling or private equity math, which was great. I uh, went to a lot of events that after the first few, it all gets repetitive, but those first couple were incredibly insightful. And I felt like my confidence went to that next level after I eventually convinced this active underwriter who still works for like an asset management company, like in corporate America, I convinced, I convinced that individual to tutor me, even though he didn't have an education business. I just liked hanging out with him, like talking to him. And after three or four months, I convinced him like, can you just meet with me for two months every Saturday? I'll pay you like 200 bucks an hour but I just need you to give me direct feedback as I underwrite so I can understand if any of this actually makes sense. And so it was a combination of, yeah, all the free resources out there, getting that one-on-one -on -one coaching, I guess you can call it, from someone that had experience. And eventually, as I built more confidence, I started underwriting more deals for other teams. And the more deals that I underwrote for other teams, the more I understood the nuances. I was talking to brokers, I was talking to lenders, I was talking to insurance agents and getting that feedback. And that all ultimately culminated into kind of the knowledge that I have today. It was very scrappy. It was very hard, but not necessarily the most efficient way, but it's new that again, I'm the type of person where I love efficiency as a data nerd, but I also have to do everything once I, I have to understand the nuances of the like how the machine is put together. I don't want to do it a second time. I never want to do the same thing twice. So I, I purposely try to build the systems and processes, but I have to do it at least once digging deep into, even though it tear apart spreadsheets myself, I would try to look at where every single cell led, how changing some levers impacted the investor returns, how it impacted my own returns as, as a potential general partner. And so, yeah, it was a lot of trial and error, a lot of trial and error. So I do want to dive deeper into the nuts and bolts and techniques that you use that you can help people to get started or people who are already kind of into this to really level up their skills. But before we do that, I want to hear from you the mindset that you had that you actually believed that the time that you were spending, you left your job and you're working long hours for free. Mm -hmm. What was it that said, I'm on the right track. I believe that commercial real estate multifamily is the way to go to my financial freedom and kept you going all those late nights and long hours. Yeah, I think it was just how real estate functions as a wealth generation vehicle where most people in real estate can control how they build wealth. And I am someone that despite my story, I'm pretty risk averse. So even when I invest into stocks, I put it into index funds. Like I, I never like taking a risk on individual companies. I have very little money in crypto, maybe like some crypto funds that invest across the board. And I knew that there's no way that I could bet, bet it all on Tesla or Meta and try to make it rich. I needed a concrete step-by-step -step plan so I could slowly build it over time. And it seemed like real estate's really the only investment vehicle out there that, that allows you to do that. Knowing my distaste for variance, like stability and certainty, I figured commercial real estate was really the only way to go. 
commercial real estate really is a rinse and repeat type of business plan where it's very stable and you just keep going and doing the same thing. Not to make it sound like it's easy. It is definitely difficult. And now that you're doing operations, I'm sure you understand there are certain problems that come up that you need to solve. It's, oh, yeah. it's never easy. But at the same time, the more experience you have, the more you just keep doing a rinse and repeat on the properties that you do have. So how is it different now in practice? Maybe take us into what you're working on today as a, an operator and lead sponsor for multifamily deals and how that's different than learning and trying to get your foot in the door. Now your foot in the door. What does your underwriting career look like? Yeah. So I, today I am an active multifamily operator. So me and my business partner, we've got a company where we try to take down deals ourselves out of Cincinnati. And so not only do we have a lead generation system, a direct to seller system, not only does my partner talk with brokers, I underwrite our deals after we have them under contract. I, we're the ones that we find the lender, we find the insurance agent, find the capital raisers. After we close, I'm the asset manager. My, my business partner is the construction manager. He also helps with asset management. So we're really a, like what we're trying to take as much of the operations in house and we have consistent talks about potentially going down the rabbit hole of bringing on additional partners that are in-house that focus on the capital raising or maybe the property management. But yeah, very different today versus where I started off with. Today, obviously, I'm managing my own properties. So all the numbers, all the underwriting that I do is based on experience rather than just what everyone else tells me to do. And I would say that real estate is one of those areas where the amount of energy that it takes to get your foot in the door is so tremendous. But as soon as you have just a little bit of unit count or you've taken down a deal or two, the doors open up so much because it is so hard to be a real estate investor. Once you have a tiny bit of experience that takes you so far, but getting that tiny bit of experience is just so much. It's like a mountain that you have to climb. But once you're at the top, it's other mountains seem a lot smaller. And I'm, I'm fortunate that I was able to grind out those first years, but in hindsight, that first year of not really having any traction was the hardest, not only in terms of obviously not having unit counts and, and whatnot, but just mentally, it was just so hard to know that you were putting so much effort in and it was all for a simple promise that there, there might be some returns or traction or cash flow in the future. Yeah, a world of difference. I, I think scaling obviously comes with its own slew of problems. We have an assistant that we hired last year to try and help us with our admin tasks. We're constantly looking for partnerships and new people to work with so we can grow our portfolio. And I'm constantly thinking of how to improve our processes and systems with technology. But that is a much more exciting problem to have than the struggle of just being on your own, hitting your head against the wall, not really knowing what to do, but knowing that you got to keep hitting that head until something breaks. Now that you have that experience behind you, let's shift our focus a little bit and talk to maybe a beginner investor, a mm -hmm. potential, a potential limited partner who is looking at this opportunity saying, yeah, I want to get into real estate. And this is so common. I need to get in real estate. I need to get in real estate. But the upfront time that it takes to make a confident, decisive investing decision is sometimes daunting. So how can you, what advice would you give to a limited partner as you're walking them through the very early stages of saying, I should do this to actually putting some capital into their first investment? I would say that there, there's always this fine line that every starting investor has to walk. There's one analysis paralysis where you're just overwhelmed and you're worried about making too many errors. 
so you don't do anything. But on the other side of the spectrum, what you mentioned is that FOMO, the fear of missing out where you're just so desperate to just get anything that you just, you're frustrated with yourself that you don't have real traction. So you just blindly put your money somewhere and you, I don't want to say delude yourself, but you trick yourself into thinking that rash decision was a smart one. And that leads to real traction, which honestly, I don't think it does. And so it, it's hard to walk that balance, but I think the easiest way to make sure you are not making a decision that you will regret later on is by understanding at least the bare minimum of what it takes to understand the business of multifamily. And I make it, I make a point not to say underwriting. I think there's huge value in underwriting. I think it's great to know how to model like the life cycle of an asset, but a lot of people misconstrue underwriting as plugging numbers into a spreadsheet, which honestly, like literally, like you can train probably like a chimpanzee to do. That's it's not the that easy difficult. Part. <laughs> exactly. It's the research. Uh, it's hard. <laughs> exactly. The real life assumptions, the benchmarks, the feedback from key partners, understanding the levers that impact real estate returns and having a plan B, C, D, and E in case plan A doesn't work out. That's the part of underwriting that modeling aspect that not a lot of people give a lot of weight to, but I think building up that confidence is key. And part of building that confidence, I think, is surrounding yourself with other investors, trying to get your foot in the door, or at least your face seen by as many people as you can. And I think one of the, one of the decisions that I attribute my eventual traction to was going to in-person events, because there is a level of camaraderie and intimacy that you can generate with other people that you just can't get over Zoom. Like being able to being able to meet a ton of people over Zoom is very efficient, which is I still do that every single week. But going to an event, hanging out with people, grabbing a drink, grabbing lunch, grabbing coffee, I think that just helps tremendously. And that allows you to find people that are more experienced than you. Maybe you find other people that are in the same position and building a community and having a network just makes everything so much easier. And there's really no, there's no like specific strategy that I can give you on how to learn how to invest in multifamily. Everyone can go about their own way. A lot of people join masterminds. A lot of people join boot camps or events. Some people like myself absorb as much free knowledge or do courses that online that are paced. But regardless of how you start, I think you, you have to always eventually get a network because you can't really take down deals on your own anyway. So getting that portion started as early as possible, I feel like is the best concrete advice that I can provide. That is excellent because you're right. You cannot do these large deals by yourself unless you're incredibly wealthy. And the very yeah. first time you decide to do it, a bank says, sure, we'll give you a loan, even though you don't know what you're doing because you have so much liquidity that even if you're stupid, you can throw it in there. And not many of exactly. us are in that position. It's unusual. And so I'll agree that the story that you tell about going to live events, that's how I met my financial manager. And we did a deal together. And now he's talking about coming in and doing the financial management underwriting for the fund that we're launching. The way that I met him was sitting in a conference and we were all spread out over the room. And the leader of the conference knew several of us already and basically pointed to this guy and made a comment about how he's an underwriter extraordinaire. And I just looked over there and I was sitting with my husband and I just got up and I walked over and I sat next to this kid. <laughs> and I just sat there. He didn't know that I was there to sit next to him. It was just somebody sitting next to him. But then the next break during it, I'm like looking over his shoulder at his spreadsheet. 
And I finally said, oh, I hear you're a great underwriter. The guy just told everybody in the room. And so we started chatting about it and he's showing me his spreadsheet. And I finally said, got to tell it like, I I ain't never going to use that is a monster of proportions that nobody who's not really into this. I'm not ever going to use it. I said, do you have maybe like a CEO version? And so he actually went home after that conference and made a CEO version and sent it to me. And so then when he would run things through the beast model, we actually called it the beast. He would then have that automatically transcribe over to some tabs that were the CEO version. And then I could look at that. that. So being able to read the thing for me, it wasn't as important to be able to plug the numbers in and do the research. Although I did force myself to do that, but being able to read what somebody else gave me is really important if you're not the actual financial manager, but Mm -hmm. you need to be able to read the reports from the financial manager. So imagine somebody's opening up a pro forma or something like that. And they're considering investing in this deal. Maybe they already like the team and they want to go for it. And now they're looking at this, these numbers and they give them maybe a deal highlight. The IRR is this and COCR is this. And they're like, I don't know what any of this is. So, So how do you walk us through that process of just opening it up for the first time and reading it? Obviously, if it's your first time, you probably shouldn't invest. You read a lot of them, read 10 of them, read a hundred of them before you place any money. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, how do you start getting into there and reading these things and being able to use them to make investing decisions? Before I touch on that, I think I I love what you just mentioned about the beast model and then the CEO version, (laughs) where uh, I guess this is more of a note to other aspiring underwriters, where I also learned this from corporate America, where most of the world does not care at all about your p-value or your chi-square <laughs> test like no one cares about all that noise no one likes to look at code no one likes to look at spreadsheets and so i always say that it's my job as the underwriter and i put that message out there it's the job of any underwriter to distill all of that great information that complex knowledge into plain english because at the end of the day we're the ones that are digging into all of the numbers. We're the ones that are trying to map out loosely, at least what the business plan is. And it's a pet peeve of mine. Even when the underwriters send me their spreadsheet directly, that's just the biggest pet peeve because I know I can, I can read spreadsheets pretty well. I've lived in Excel and data my entire life. My point is you should always, the underwriter should be the one that goes a little bit above and beyond to translate all the findings. Otherwise, If I do the underwriting and I just plug in a bunch of numbers with almost very little words in the spreadsheet and I send it off to my partner, I am then forcing my partner to literally just underwrite from scratch again. They have to understand all the assumptions that I made, all the levers that I'm pulling. And so it's, I guess for the team, it's very inefficient. I always suggest that people, even if it's bullet points in an email or you have just one of the tabs, you put like a text box and you just jot down some notes or eventually you'll have to put into some sort of presentation for your limited partners or for other capital raisers or partners that you're trying to help with. Do that step first. Don't just start sending a bunch of spreadsheets around because it just makes everyone's life harder. That's Uh, so true. I have redesigned spreadsheets that once my financial manager got done and sent it over to me, because there are several different beasts that we use depending on uh what deal we're working on. And I'll pull that out and I was like, I can't can't really explain this to investors. And so I'll go in and I'll redesign report tabs that draw from those cells and make it all pretty and brand colored and all of that, because if people can't read it and it's not in plain English, you can't, you most people are not going to use those to make investing decisions. I feel like I know more about it than the average investor, the average Mm -hmm. even operator, but I still don't like it. I don't want to look at it. If somebody can put it into a nice report format for me, I would prefer that greatly. So that is an excellent point. If you don't know how to read it, 
and it's confusing you, do you really want to dive into that spreadsheet or just want to be able to look at the table of highlights and say, okay, here are the key metrics that are going on. I, I want to know what each one of those are. That's on Investopedia. Have a exactly. call and just ask somebody to explain it to you. Everybody has different goals too. Like when mm -hmm. we, when my husband was working, we just invested for the long-term growth deals. I was reinvesting a hundred percent of what we were doing and we wanted to get the most growth possible because somebody else was taking care of the bills. But then when right, he right. left his job and now suddenly that year of preparation to leave his job, we're like, eh, we better shift over to cash flow investing. We're not going to get as high of returns, but somebody has to eat. So mm -hmm. the goals that you have are really going to change the numbers that you look at. So can you maybe just give us two examples one for somebody who needs the cash flow right away and maybe they're re retired already and one who's not planning on retiring for a while. They're nowhere near having the nest egg. They need to do that. And they're going more for growth. How would you look at those two situations? Yeah, that makes sense. So for a limited partner, I think the first key areas that I look for is the size of the CapEx budget, because if it's a large value add deal, I, I bet money that for the first few years, you're not going to get that cash flow. And I know the cash and cash mm -hmm. number might look nice and big because it's averaged, obviously, over the whole of the period. But if you're looking for cash flow, you don't want a deal that has a lot of prep deficiency in the first two years. If they explain that to you and you're okay with that, obviously perfect. But that that's, I think, a key point that I always look out for when I'm analyzing deals from other people. And more importantly, I think part of it is also being able to ask those questions to whoever sent you the deal to invest in. And I think their responses also show you a lot, right? If you're asking them what the pitfalls of the deal are or what they think the biggest obstacles are, and they're just painting everything in an amazing rosy picture, I think that's actually a bigger red flag than anything that you might see in the spreadsheet because I always tell other people too that I can, on paper, I can make any deal look amazing. Like unfortunately, <laughs> like it's... You know, spreadsheets are not that complex and I know them enough where I can pull essentially any lever that I want to make a deal look like it's fantastic. And I think part of the leap of faith that a past investor has to make when they're first starting out is trusting the individual that gave that deal to you to take a look at. And at least for me, I don't like people that paint everything in the rosiest picture because more often than not, I know a lot of shit goes wrong in real estate. So I'd much rather have a operator that is very upfront that tells me like, here are our biggest risks, but let me show you in the spreadsheet exactly how we accounted for them. And I understand that nothing's going to be perfect. Even if you account for obstacles, there's more obstacles that are going to appear. But at the very least, I like individuals. I like operators, myself included. I like to set expectations lower so I can exceed them versus setting the bar really high and then having everyone be disappointed. So my best advice for someone who isn't necessarily super sophisticated with looking at a spreadsheet, like it, you're not going to learn how to read a spreadsheet based on a few tips that I give you over a podcast. But if you get a feel for the person who is giving you this deal, and if they seem like they're upfront about the risks involved, I'd say that's also a pretty good sign that it's a team that you can trust or maybe you should stay away from. Have you ever read the book, How to Lie with Statistics? No, I don't think so, but I feel like I'd like that. <laughs> yeah, it's basically about showing how you can manipulate data to tell any story 
that you want and right. to take a critical eye at when people are giving you information. But that's not to say that now you suddenly need to become a financial underwriter. Or you need mm -hmm. to become the researcher or the data scientist. You have to be able to trust the person who's distilling the information into layman's terms for you. Because if you can't trust that they didn't pull all the levers, like you said, and make any deal look good, mm -hmm. then you can't trust that they're going to do a great job stewarding your money. Being able to trust the person who is giving you the data and distilling the data rather than allowing them to lie with statistics because they're taking advantage of the fact that you don't know as much as they do. You get right. to that point where you trust that person to do a good job of disseminating the information. So you don't, as an investor, have to become a financial expert. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. So I think part of my philosophy is also you should know enough about the project so that you can vet it directly yourself. So I don't think there is an easy way to get around that. I think you have to educate yourself. You have to attend some free boot camps, pay a few hundred bucks for some Udemy courses, talk to another experienced investor who can really understand the levers that are being pulled so that you can use that to your own advantage. Not to sound super pessimistic, but my philosophy is also, I can trust myself more than I can trust anyone else in this world. So if you don't have that knowledge, there's really no easy way to blindly trust someone unless you develop that knowledge yourself. And in multifamily, there is a bit of an echo chamber with the term conservative underwriting. Literally everyone, no one's going to outright say, oh, I'm a super aggressive underwriter. That's not marketable. That doesn't lead to a lot of good passive investor confidence. And so I... I don't want to say that it's malicious, but it's all arbitrary. It's all subjective. Just because I think something is conservative doesn't mean that your neighbor will think it's conservative. Doesn't mean that you think it'll be conservative. And I've actually run into plenty of times where I get deals from a ton of other investors and they will say that they are being conservative and I will not think that they're conservative at all or the reverse. They'll apologize for being a little too aggressive and on my end, I'm saying like, hey, this is like a great deal and you're very conservative. And so there's really no magic pill that'll distill all of that into your brain or I can't give you a copy of the years of experience that I have with data, but going through the hard work of trying to know at least a little bit about yourself, at least a little bit about how the specific model that you're taking a look at works, I think will go a long way. Fortunately, there are also maybe a dozen models that are popular in multifamily. So if you take Michael Blanc's course to do his SDA or synthesis is one that the group that I'm a part of uses very often. If you just take the course to understand how that specific model functions and what levers are typically pulled, I think that will help elevate your knowledge to the point where you can at least understand what you're taking a look at. And I know in my case, I have a webinar that I did where we just walked through a pitch deck and we just looked at all the numbers and everything and just taught, here's what an IRR is. Here's what a cash and cash return yeah. is. It's something like, and I know that you are teaching as well to get people to the level that they're comfortable with. And, I, and there are two things. It's your version of how much you are willing to accept risk. If you're accepting more risk, you're going to go yeah. in with less knowledge. And if you want to take less risk, you have to go in with more knowledge. And the way that you then, the other lever that you pull would be how much money you're investing. So I have money invested in tech startups, data science startups that I don't particularly understand exactly what it is that they're doing. And I know that I don't have to because the amount of money that I put in has matched the amount oh, of that. education 
that I have also put in. And so if I was going to put in a million dollars to something I didn't understand, that would feel a lot different to me than if I put a million dollars into a real estate deal that I really understood well. So the amount of education matters and also adjusting the amount of money really matters. So tell us about how you get people to that point through your courses and through what you're offering to get people comfortable and being able to pick which investments they want to go and how much they feel comfortable putting in. Part of what I do is teach others how to underwrite. I run a boot camp every so often. I have a self-paced video course and I also underwrite for other people, but that's usually for other active investors that just want to outsource their underwriting to me. Part of what I've created with all the education content that I put out there, if you follow me on Facebook and LinkedIn, I also just give free underwriting tips like once a week. And part of what I've done is also try to provide value to this industry with what I would have wanted when I was starting out. So when I started out as an underwriter, I tried to absorb as much as possible Not to the point where I started off with free resources, but I paid so much money for events and boot camps and online webinars or whatever, but none of them, in my opinion, in my humble opinion, give you that comprehensive look from start to finish. A lot of underwriting education focuses more so on just like plugging numbers into spreadsheets. And what I provide is more of that process. Like I, the course itself as 20 hours of filmed content that I've purposely created for the people that are looking to learn. I'm not reusing webinars. I'm not reusing just casual chats with friends, but it's 20 hours of content that I think is also, it may sound overwhelming, but hopefully that also highlights just how in-depth that I go. And part of what I teach is that if you're opening up a spreadsheet as your first reaction to the word underwriting, you're wasting a lot of time. <laughs> Part of what you should be doing is doing online research onto the team that you're dealing with and to the area you should be looking on Google Maps to start off with to understand like where you're even at in terms of location. And only after it passes certain checks, then do you go through the hard effort of opening up that amazing spreadsheet and doing the quote unquote, the science portion of underwriting. I would say there's like an art and a science, and you should always start with the art because I've made the mistake, even as someone who's very technical, where I would spend eight hours underwriting this deal. And then I'd be super excited because the returns look amazing. And then I Google the address and I realize it's in like a class D neighborhood that I'd be afraid to go into. And it's just, why did I waste eight hours for a deal that I knew I I'd take a look at where the address is? And I'm like, I'm not investing into this. There's no way. And so I purposely, based on my experience of analyzing, I don't know how many deals at this point, hundreds, if not thousands of deals for myself and for other people as someone that gets paid to do this. I've tried to make it as streamlined as possible for someone that might not have any experience in multifamily. So that's the philosophy that, that I utilize. I always say that it doesn't matter if we want to be an active investor, an underwriting specialist, or I just want to be a limited partner forever, or I want to just end up as a limited partner eventually. We're all starting in the same place underwriting 101 anybody can go whether they are a limited partner or a, an aspiring active underwriter you all start in the same place it's day one and maybe if you have a finance degree you might be starting out a little bit of ahead of the rest of us but for the most part we're all starting in the same place and you choose how far you get the path that you want to go how deep exactly. do you want to get into this you start here at the starting line with everybody else and some people decide that the quarter mile is enough and some people want to go to the half and some people want to make a whole career out of it but there's always value in getting together with a bunch of other people who are where you are and just getting started. I agree. And I love the way that you put that to where part of the way my philosophy of underwriting, right, is you always start with the online research portion. 
And that's the portion that anyone can do. You don't need a technical background to Google around or use Google Maps or take a look at some free websites to see what the population growth is. And those steps are important for passive investors, for capital raisers, for deal finders, anyone that just needs at least a baseline understanding of what they're getting into, hyper important. But only those that want to be like me, like a full-time underwriter, only they're the ones that really need to dig into the nuances of levers and spreadsheets. I still recommend obviously everyone learn, but there is a half of underwriting that I feel like everyone should do. And then a half of underwriting that only if you want to be more technical and more in the weeds, do I feel like you have to get into. So I love that. I completely agree that I feel like everyone should at least understand the art portion of underwriting because it's easy enough for anyone to pick up. It's screening with photos, doing comps on apartment rental websites. Yeah, exactly. It's that's where I always start. We always vet the operator first. Do I like them? Do I trust them? Do they know what they're doing? What's their track record? Have a conversation, get that gut check. And then the second thing you check is the market. There's no spreadsheet yeah. in a market. You just maybe have a checklist. <laughs> What's the population? What's the growth size? What's the crime rate? What is the crime rate in this neighborhood? Once mm -hmm. I've checked that, then is when the point where you start getting into the numbers and breaking of the spreadsheet. So there's a lot that you can do before you ever have to look at a spreadsheet. But I will caution this is a finance business at its base. And if you never want to look at numbers, you never want to read a pro forma, you never want to read the reports that the operator is sending you. I don't know if it's really the best fit, but that is not just real estate. That's with any kind of investing in personal finance. You do need to get to the point where you're comfortable looking at the charts, the numbers, and understanding what it is that you're being sent. So there's a little bit of work you need to do up front. You learn better by doing. So I always say, if you want to learn by doing, just put in less money. Just go throw a little bit of money at a deal and see how it goes. You're always more motivated to look at it when it's real money instead of monopoly money. So that's what I always say. If you're having cold feet or you are underwriting averse or numbers averse, there are ways that you can get to a comfortable point with it and using a trusted advisor to basically explain it to you like you're 10. I love that because the, the idea of that risk adjusted return is very common in like throughout real estate that I feel like everyone has to get used to that there it's like a sliding scale of mm -hmm. comfort and also return. So if you are looking at a deal and it has great returns, but you're not comfortable with the deal just because you don't know what you're doing, putting less money might give you less returns, but it gives you more comfort. Yeah. On the other hand, maybe you are like a billionaire and $2 million means absolutely nothing to you. And you're willing to put that in into a random, some person that you just met more returns, but less comfort because yeah. taking a risk in devoting a lot of money to someone that you barely know, but the potential for return is a lot higher. Yeah. I feel like that's a common theme, not just in choosing the people that you invest with, but just in real estate overall, like worse areas, higher returns, usually better areas, less returns. So it's all risk adjusted to what you get back. Exactly. And knowing that about yourself sometimes can only be learned by just throwing your hat in the ring and giving it a try. So Trial and error. Yeah. yeah. Jason, I always ask every guest, tell me about your next passive income adventure, something that you're working on either business or personal that you would not be able to do if you had not chosen this lifestyle of not just doing well enough, but you knew there was something more out there and you went after it to pursue it. What is that passive income dream or goal that drives you? That's a great question. Cause I think it's imperative that everyone that chooses to go on this real estate journey understands what that is for themselves. A lot of, I feel like success in real estate, the more that I, the more years that I spend doing this, the more I with other people, I think self-awareness is incredibly key. 
And for me, I've always known that I'm not a big gamer. I think growing up in a, a poor immigrant family, I didn't have much to begin with. So I never missed nice things. And my dad is someone who classically fell into that consumer mentality of just living in America. He couldn't afford it, but for some reason he bought a Lexus. And I'm like, in hindsight, I just think it's ridiculous that he spent money that he didn't have and had to sell the Lexus five day, five years later because he couldn't make the payments. But I think that portion has always never really resonated with me. I've had nice watches or nice clothes or nice suits before, but they would not really bring me joy. So what I've been honest with myself on is that I just like comfort. I just like the freedom of time of spending evenings or days with friends and family. And what I'm working towards is having enough passive income that I can buy back my time and devote it to the people that I find most valuable in my life, whether that's colleagues and friends or parents or my wife. Just, yeah, because that, that's what essentially derives the most joy for me. I still want some nice things. Like I love sushi. That's like probably the most expensive habit that I have. I don't really care about nice cars or nice watches or anything like that today, but I still want a standard of living. Like I, I want to be able to fly business class or not stay at a, a super eight every time I go anywhere. So I have a bare minimum level, but because I don't think it's that high, I think I can also get to my passive income goal faster, which actually is more exciting for me because I'd rather have more time sooner to spend with time and family than feel like I have to grind for the next 20 years because I want like a $4 million house and like a $150,000 car or something like that. We're the same. We chose speed at lowering our lifestyle and living well below our means so that we could trade that for speed of getting to the point where we could both be self-employed, unemployed. And in doing so, we have given up a lot of items and stuff and doodads because we just wanted that time. That's what motivates us as well. And eventually when you let this cook for another five years, you can start to think more about getting some of those things, but we definitely chose speed over, <laughs> over, over stuff. And I know people who do it the opposite. This is going to take me 10 or 15 years, even though I'm a high income earner, because we have a big house and we like nice cars and we go on nice vacations. Everybody's, everybody's different and you get to choose what it is that motivates you. And one thing I love about asking that question to every guest is it's always a different answer and it <laughs> helps the listener to figure out well, what is it that drives me? There's no right or wrong. There's yeah. no right or wrong. It's just, you get to decide what's right for you. And sometimes hearing other people's stories helps you to do that. So thank you for sharing that with us, Jason. Yeah, of course. And I think part of the beauty of being an entrepreneur, kind of like what you said, is that you get to pick yourself I think funny enough, though, the mistake that I see a lot of sort of newer investors make is that because they are unsure of what they want out of life, they choose to follow people that don't really resonate with them. I've seen so many people that, you know, reach out to me and we're talking and I ask them who they follow and they'll name all the big gurus that have private jets and stuff. I'm like, oh, cool. Do you want a private jet? They're like, no, never. I just want to live a quiet life. And then my question is always, like, why, why are you trying to aspire or listening to someone that doesn't have the life that you want. And that's always the point where it catches them off guard and they have to be like, oh, I guess that makes sense. But I think the my biggest recommendation to any newer investors or even passive investors that are looking to get started is also try to understand what you want first and foremost, because that helps you write the strategy for how you get there. I think if you're really unsure of what you want out of life, you might have to do some exploration and maybe you'll go down the wrong path for a little bit, but then you can pivot later on. But uh, I feel like that's also a big advantage, just having yeah, the self-awareness enough to just be honest with yourself, look yourself in the mirror and say, 
I don't really care about commercial things. Or even if you look at yourself and say, I really want that Bugatti because that means something to me because I've always wanted one because my dad always wanted one or my mom always wanted one. I think there's nothing wrong with that, but you just have to be honest with yourself. It's whatever motivates you and it's different. It's different for everybody. And yeah, exactly. Finding the high value motivation, that's really key because otherwise you'll just go after the low hanging fruit, follow the hustle culture crowd, but really putting some time into contemplating what it is that motivates you greatly will help you through the rocky parts of the path. Before we wrap up, I want to mention, I have thought of the book, The Millionaire Next Door so many times while oh, yes. we've been sitting here talking. And there are so many parallels between what you're describing and the book. And he talks a lot about the immigrant parent that comes in and has a blue collar business is actually most likely to be a millionaire because their cost of living is so low yeah. and they're just out there working really hard. And their first generation kids, their first generation millionaire kids, they want them to go off and be doctors and lawyers mm -hmm. and data scientists and this, and the standard of living goes up and they basically fill their income with stuff. And most millionaire, most children of millionaires do not go on to become millionaires themselves. Something like 80% of them will not become a millionaire. And this book is old. Everybody's a millionaire now if you own a house. But, <laughs> but the concept that you're talking about of keeping your lifestyle and your level in accordance with your job, a blue collar janitor doesn't feel the need to have a Bugatti mm -hmm. for the most part. But he wants his kids to go to medical school and he wants his kids to be able to get that so they don't have to work as hard as he did. And it's a very mixed message that we get. And your story mirrors that in so many ways. Yeah, I actually, I know exactly the book that you're talking about. It's actually one that I love to read, but it's funny that you mention it because I, I imagine, so I wonder if part of the reason why I don't have a big consumer's appetite is because my dad failed. I can imagine mm -hmm. if he was well off today, maybe I would love Bugattis and Gucci <laughs> shoes and stuff like that. But yeah, I think there's something about immigrant parents wanting their kids to succeed and trying to push them towards a life that might drive them to like specific things. An expensive but, life. <laughs> an expensive life, exactly. But yeah, funny enough, I consider my frugality a superpower because I just don't, I just like, uh, this is getting too much into like my own personal stuff, but I used to have watches that were like in the tens of thousands of dollars just because, you know, in my youth, I also thought that's how you were supposed to sit. I worked in New York. I lived on Wall Street, right? I was doing the whole, like I lived in a nice apartment, but I actually, I got to a point where I was nervous to wear my watch out because it was so expensive. And I think all after many years, I realized that I would look at my, I eventually sold it, but I would look at it and I would see that it was in, in its little stand that I bought, but I hadn't taken out in four years. And so it just seemed like a waste of space. And every time I didn't want to wear it out because I, I was afraid that someone would steal it or notice it was a nice watch and try to take it from me. I think part of my superpower is that I don't feel like I'm sacrificing a lot. Like I, I get the benefit of speed because I get to keep my costs low, but I don't really feel bad about myself because I don't have a super nice car or a super luxury home right now. So it, it's advantageous for me because I can get to where I want to go faster without feeling like I'm losing too much. Exactly. I really relate to your perspective because I feel like I'm very similar in that way for different reasons, but we both ended up in the same place of feeling like the frugality is a superpower. I never thought about it that way before, but we're getting to the age now where it's time to stop doing that. And it's been very difficult, very difficult because we're sitting on a lot of equity as real estate investors. Cash flow sometimes takes longer to cook yeah. than equity does. And so we're in that waiting for the pot to boil phase. We're like, do we still have to 
keep being frugal. I just want a new minivan. That's all I want. But I do really relate to what you're saying because I feel like the key to doing it is coming at it from both directions, knowledge and having making money and also lowering the lifestyle and so that you can get to the middle a little bit sooner. You're going to have to have me back in five years. Maybe I do have a Bugatti and I'm just a, a big hypocrite. <laughs> it's a certain percentage of your income that goes towards toys. And right now, when your cash flow is lower, and maybe you have high net worth, but low cash flow, the toys are going to reflect that. And as you get more and more money, you might get more toys. And you also might just donate a lot more money to a foundation that you really care about it. Right yeah. now, people don't have those choices because they get so wrapped up in their lifestyle, mm -hmm. increasing the options of what you can do with your money, like giving back requires a little bit of giving up. And so this practice of living a smaller lifestyle, as our money increases, we'll be able to give back more because we're willing to give up a little bit more. So it comes around full circle. Yeah, I love that. And I think going back to your earlier point about how you really need real estate, as I, I can say this with 100% confidence as an operator that does this every day, is hard and it's not glamorous. There's many days I'm just doing grunt work or admin stuff. Yep. And it's really hard to keep yourself going, even if you're a passive investor or if you're aspiring to be a full-time active investor, it's really hard to get going if you don't have that vision or that calling that's holding you to the grind of everyday life. And if it's a nice house, great. But I think even if it's, if the idea of being able to give back to other people really drives you, I say that's also a great motivating factor because that makes it so that even when times get tough, you'll still stick to it. And uh, eventually success is at the end of the day, just consistency. You just have to keep doing it for multiple years. And the only way that you fail is if you give up and the more concrete vision you have to get there, I think the greater your chances of success become. Yes. Amen. Can't say it better myself. Excellent. Because we all get to choose what that looks like, but right. when you choose better be committed because yeah. <laughs> it better be strong. Thank you so much for joining us, Jason. I really appreciate your time. I found this fascinating both on the side of the nuts and bolts and techniques to get better at knowing the numbers, but as well as the mindset and the driving behind why we do hard things, basically. So I appreciate you spending some time and talking about both of those issues. I think they're both really key to our success as investors on that passive income adventure journey. Finally, how can people reach out to you and more importantly, why should they reach out to you? Yeah, I'm pretty active across social. Last name is B-A-I-K. If you look me up, if you're watching the video, I look like me in the photo. I think my tagline is XVP of data science. Yeah, please feel free to, to add me on social. I, I try to give free underwriting tips too. I also have two separate websites. So one for our actual multifamily investing called compoundingcapitalgroup.com. If you sign up for a newsletter, you get some uh, a monthly update on our projects, some book reviews, some updates on the local economy. And then the underwritinglab.com is also how you can connect if you're interested in getting your underwriting education kind of to that next level. And I actively love to show other people how to use data to make smarter decisions. And I have nothing to upsell you. Obviously I have paid classes and stuff, but I don't have a larger mastermind. I'm not trying to grow an education arm of our business. I literally just like to make more people more informed. And so if you feel like you are a little unsure of how to approach the world of multifamily underwriting, maybe there's something that I can teach you. So feel free to follow me for some free stuff. And I've got more in-depth paid options as well. It's great that you have some support for both the limited partner on one side and also the aspiring active investor on the other side, because 
people come in all walks of life. Some people want to do this as a career. Some people want to stick with their career and just invest their money. And so having options for both groups of people, depending on their goals is fantastic. So thank you for sharing that with us. And I appreciate you being with us today. Yeah, likewise. It was a great chat, Emma. Yeah, I appreciate you having me too. All right. We'll catch y'all on the next one. That was packed with so much information. We actually ran a little bit longer because I just found there was so much to talk about on both sides of those things. I want to make sure that when you feel inspired, that you also are being given the information that you need to go act on that. There's nothing worse than being fired up about something and getting really excited, but then not having the know-how or the tools that you need to actually go take action on that inspiration. It's almost like the helium coming out of a balloon and it's hard to get it back in there. Once you discover what it is that really drives you and motivates you and gets you fired up, it's really important to follow that up with the techniques and strategies that you're going to implement. And one keeps you fired up during the difficulty while you're actually working to implement that plan. And the other gives you the confidence that you can achieve your dreams because you know how. So the balance of that in this episode was really fantastic. And I just found myself fascinated at every turn and listening to Jason's story about what drives him. It's so unique for every person. So I'm glad that you enjoyed that with us. Make sure that you check us out at our website, www.highrise.group to book a free call with me. We also have one-on-one accountability calls that you can book so that you can set your goals and have somebody who's been there and done that and really cares about you reaching your goals, who will sit with you beside you and walk you through achieving those. We're also launching our new fund. So we have some investing opportunities on our website for accredited investors. And if you don't know what that is, be sure to book your free welcome call so that we can walk you through how to get involved in investing in commercial real estate so that you can reach your dreams and go on your passive income adventure sooner. Thank you. And we'll see you all next time.